Hi, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. Each week we will interview a history professor with the theme of power and people. Let's get started. Welcome to It's All History to Me, Wego 91.1's History Radio Hour, live here at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays, to, or afterwards, wherever you're listening. Um, today is Wednesday, March 29th, and today we have Dr. Adam Dombey from the History Department. Dr. Dombey received his doctorate from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He currently serves as an associate professor in the History Department and specializes in, American, in the American War and Reconstruction. He teaches classes on the American Civil War as it connects to memory, just to name one of his subjects. In 2020, Dr. Dombey published a book called, entitled the, Fa- the False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory, and, which examines the roles of lies, exaggeration, and the creation of the lost clause narratives of the, uh, of the war, as well as their connections to white supremacy, as connections to white supremacy, looking at pension fraud, Confederate monument dedications, and other misreveals, much of our understanding of the Civil War remains influenced by falsehoods and racism. So thank you so much for coming in, Dr. Dombey. Thank you for having me. So what got you excited, it got you interested in historical memory? Was there a specific moment that you look point back to and say, yeah, that's the starting point? Yeah, I was actually about your guys' age. I was in college, and uh, I took a class on the American Civil War, and Early in the semester, we started learning about the causes of the Civil War. And I'd grown up hearing, well, slavery wasn't really the cause of the Civil War. And all of a sudden, I'm in a class where um, they, where it's, it's all about slavery. Um, and slavery is clearly the cause of the Civil War. When we look at the, uh, the roots of the Civil War, when we look at the actual documents that those who are seceding wrote, saying, here's why we want to secede. Again and again, they're saying, we want to protect slavery. And so I was like, whoa, why did I hear from people growing up sometimes something that wasn't necessarily entirely true? Um, And I had watched movies glorifying the Confederacy. um, And and the answer was it had had less to do with the actual war and more to do with what came after the war. Um, And so that's why I became interested in memory specifically is I think that there were aspects of my own understanding of the past that were wrong when I got to college and started looking at primary source material, the actual writings of the time, rather than what people told me in uh, class or on the street or whatever. Very interesting. Yeah. Really cool how much the classes can shape what what your legacy ends up being with history. Very cool. Okay. So, who were the people that ignited your passion for history? Well, that's a good question. Um, so the people that really ignited my passion for history were, were largely uh, twofold. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the professors that I had in college. Um, David Blight was my Civil War professor. John Demos, my colonial American history professor. Uh, John McFerringer, who, who did an American West class. But, but most of all was probably a graduate student TA. Um, who I had um, named Aaron Sachs, who's now a professor at Cornell. And I took his class on Wilderness in the North American Imagination, which was, I thought was going to be about the woods. When Mm, I heard Wilderness, I thought, (laughs) oh, this is going to be about the woods. Mm -hmm. But it was actually about the ways that Americans conceive of the idea of wilderness and the way that we create an idea of wilderness, that we, we pretend that there's this great empty outdoors when in fact there are people living there already if we look at it historically um and so for instance you know yosemite national park Mm -hmm. is a is is now they there's sort of no people in it except for visitors but historically there were actually people who lived there Um, and so it's a created wilderness the Mm. idea of this empty wilderness in yosemite is actually requires the removal of Native Americans to have this empty wilderness rather than it being there from time immemorial. And so those were sort of the key professors. The other sort of element that brought me back to history is when I graduated college, I swore I'd never go back to school. (laughs) I was done with school. I was like, I'd done four years of college. I went, 
<laughs> and I was a park ranger for a while, and I really liked that. But yeah. then I went into politics, mm. and I worked on Capitol Hill uh, in Washington, D.C. for about uh, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And while there, I watched – I had to watch C-SPAN as part of my job, right. um, which is um, – if you've ever watched C-SPAN, very exciting. <laughs> um, and I was noticed how often in political rhetoric there was – People saying things that were just factually inaccurate mm-hmm. about the past. Yeah. And I thought, you know, we might be better off as a nation if people better understood history. I've always said mm-hmm. that Congress would, would do better if they had a few more competent historians yeah. in in Congress to sort of remind us. Because we really can't understand how to solve problems of today without understanding their roots. Right. Otherwise, you're just treating the symptoms if you don't sort of get to their historical roots. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make sure that people had a better understanding of history. So I left politics and went back to graduate school oh, yeah. uh, to get a history PhD. And then I was fortunate enough to get jobs as a history professor. Yeah. Well, very cool. Very cool. That's really interesting. Yeah. Would you say there is a common narrative of the Civil War that society has adopted or is it more is it more regional or is there a predominant national memory? Yeah, that's a really good question. So and initially, if you look at it after the Civil War, a series of narratives develop among different groups, different subgroups. And so, for instance, um, among African-Americans, you have an emancipationist memory, specifically in African-Americans in the South. that really celebrates the end of slavery, that celebrates African-American contributions to ending slavery. And and so they have their own – within the African-American community, there is – they celebrate Emancipation Day. We now have Juneteenth Day as a national holiday. That's, that's a, a clear offshoot of these early celebrations of emancipation in the 1860s and 70s uh, within the African-American community. Among white Southerners, you have a different narrative develop, uh, often called the lost cause, it's called. And it's the lost cause is a narrative that really excuses in some ways defeat and also attempts to claim victory um, despite it the Confederacy having lost the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And there's also, and I can talk more about the lost cause specifically in a moment, there's also a white northern narrative, mm-hmm. um, which and, and there's really multiple narratives, right? If when we talk about collective memory. We're talking about not what one individual understands about the past, but how society as a whole. So how do what is sort of shared? If I ask 20 people in a room, what do you know about the Civil War? 17 of them are going to agree on certain things. And, and that's a narrative then you have, right? You can sort of think of it that way as a, a sort of collective understanding. And so, yeah, there are definitely multiple narratives. There's definitely... The lost cause narrative in many ways is the most, at times at least, the most successful mm-hmm. in getting heard. And it survives um, and and is quite successful. And we see that how successful it is based on the number of monuments we have across the southern landscape. Um, you can actually measure, I guess, in some way just how successful they were at getting their version of the past out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And we'll definitely hear more about that as we go on with our uh, coming up questions and segments. But first, uh, broadly speaking, are there any misconceptions in the common understanding of the Civil War, even though it's nuanced with the different regional perspectives, that you wish you could correct or that your work is specifically striving to correct? Yes. I mean, I think the biggest one, the largest one beyond all others is the idea of what the war was caused by. Mm, right. um, the idea, there's a lot of people who sort of downplay the role of slavery mm-hmm. in the Civil War and the cause of secession. And the truth of the matter is white Southerners seceded to protect slavery and to create a slaveholder's republic. They were very clear about this fact in their articles of secession. So mm-hmm. South Carolina and Mississippi and Alabama, they all passed articles of secession where they said, this is why we're seceding. And those reasons, time and time again, Mm -hmm. are slavery. They say, our interests are aligned with slavery. We want to protect slavery. Slavery is threatened if we stay within the union. So we're going to leave to protect slavery. Mm -hmm. They're not – there's no 
attempt to uh, avoid admitting it. Right. And after the war, when slavery's gone, mm-hmm. so slavery's dead, the 13th Amendment kills it, uh, mostly. And they, if you're, if it's 1867 and slavery's dead, and you're looking back and you're like, we fought a war for slavery, you're a loser. Right. If, on the other hand, it's 1895 and you fought a right a war for states' rights, mm-hmm. which is what they'll claim, then you are, in fact, not a loser because states' rights still exist. Not only do states' rights still exist in the 1890s, but they are a crucial tool in the efforts to disenfranchise African Americans that white Southerners are using. Right. And so when we see it that way, oh, wait, they're rewriting the past because they want to be the hero, mm-hmm. right, on some level. Mm-hmm. And they can then mobilize that memory right. of Confederates as somebody worthy of emulation to mm-hmm. encourage children in the 1890s to be white supremacists. Right. And so I think that's probably the biggest myth. But I think there's a lot of other ones I get into that are smaller, including mm-hmm. the idea that every white Southerner supported the Confederacy and every white Southerner who fought for the Confederacy fought well and bravely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look at things like desertion rates right. and I look at things um, like white Southerners who fight for the United States military. Oh, yeah. And and so I think that's the, the biggest one that I sort mm. of, at least especially in my teaching and my public outreach work, right. I spend the most time on. Very cool. Very cool. Um, one more question before the break. Broadly speaking, how do you think memory of the Civil War, or just in general, relates to power today? I think it's a huge influence. I think mm-hmm. when we look at the ongoing fights about history curriculum, a lot of that has to do with the memory of the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Um, the efforts that we're seeing nationwide to avoid discussing certain topics and their history, the effort to keep African-American history from being taught or African-American studies from being taught in in Florida, for instance, mm-hmm. or efforts to decrease the amount of American history that's learned or restrict what topics of American history can be learned are very much in line with what occurred in the early 20th century mm. where groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy fought to avoid letting certain topics be taught about slavery and about American history that made white Southerners look bad. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing something very similar occur right now. So I see these fights not as new um, that we're looking at right now, the fights over curriculum um, and, and sort of what can be taught in public schools these are fights that are actually quite old. What mm-hmm. we're seeing is a new iteration of them with new language. They're using different terms, but the fights are really about the same thing, about who do we celebrate, who do we want to be like, who do we teach children that they want to emulate, and not about accuracy. Right. They're about values. These, yeah. are, these are really questions about values, and, and so we have the same fights going on. Super interesting. That's really interesting. So we're going to take a break, um, and we'll be back in two minutes after these ads. We thought we- Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, Weagle's, Weagle 91.1's History Radio Hour. Today we're here with Dr. Dombey, and if you're just joining us, we're, gonna, we're about to discuss Dr. Dombey's recently published book entitled The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory was published by the University of Virginia Press in 2020. Dombey's work ex- examines the, lo- the role of lies and exaggeration in the creation of lost clause narratives of the, of, the ro- of the war, as well as their connections to white supremacy. Looking at pension fraud, Confederate monument dedications, and other myths reveals that much of our understanding of the Civil War remains influenced by falsehoods and racism. What was your inspiration for the book? Um, so this is a, this book was not a book I actually originally intended to write. Um, I it's not based on my my dissertation research. Right when you're in graduate school, you write essentially usually a first draft of your first book in your dissertation to get your PhD. And I put my dissertation aside actually. And what happened was sort of uh, two things. One was when I was in graduate school for a term paper. I had stumbled upon a speech in which Julian Carr, 
at the dedication of the United of the UNC Confederate Monument, the monument at the University of North Carolina, had basically said this is a monument to white supremacy, and then talked about how he had violently enforced white supremacy during Reconstruction, during the era immediately after the Civil War, and I had sort of had this sort of piece about white supremacy and monuments stirring in my mind ever since that I would one day write. I thought it was going to be maybe an article. Mm -hmm. Other people had talked about it, but I had this specific example. At the same time, I found examples of pension fraud. So after the Civil War, white Southerners could apply for pensions in within their states. So Alabama had a system. North Carolina had a system. Mm-hmm. I was focused on North Carolina for this book. And what I found was there are all these individuals who, you know, they deserted after two weeks in the Confederate Army. And they're applying for pensions and saying, I fought valiantly for three years. I deserve a pension. Right. And they're getting their pensions hmm. that they're not supposed to get. In fact, there are people who never serve who get pensions. There are individuals who weren't born yet who are saying, I was a Confederate soldier wow. getting pensions. The last, I think it's of the last 12 Confederates, so they kept, you know, as you count down to the last veteran dying off, something like 10 of the last 12 Confederate veterans aren't actually Confederate veterans. Mm. There are guys who claim they were Confederate veterans, mm. and most of them were probably in their 90s, but they were claiming to be over 100 when they die. Wow. Um, at the end, these last group of them. And so I had this idea to write a st- something on pension fraud, an idea to write something on white supremacy and monuments. Mm-hmm. And I thought of them as two different projects. And I realized over time they were actually the same project. It's sort of like one of those bad right. mystery novels where <laughs> or mystery shows, right, where you've got two mysteries and it turns out at the end they're the same, right? Mm, yeah. The robbery is connected to the murder, it turns out. And so I realized this. At the same time, I began to think that a book on white supremacy and lies would be timely. Mm. This was um, in 2015. I moved to the city of Charleston, South Carolina, just literally within weeks of the Charleston terrorist attack in 2015 at Mother Emanuel Mm. resulted in, in so many deaths mm-hmm. um, because of an individual who believed lies about history. He believed, you know, he, he flew the Confederate flag and, and that motivated him. And so that occurred. And then the 2016 election, there was a lot of sort of uh, rhetoric going around that also thought made me think, well, maybe lies and white supremacy would be worth talking about. And then in 2017, you had the Unite the Right rally and the terrorist attack that day, which killed Heather Hare um, in at UVA. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that I said, okay, I really need to focus on this book. Mm-hmm. This is a book that is timely. Mm-hmm. People are literally dying because of, of beliefs about the past that are false. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some ways, this book became two things. One was to use this research that I'd done on sort of these interesting monuments and interesting uh, pension frauds Mm -hmm. to explore these larger issues of lies and how we understand the past. But in some ways, the book is really a book written for somebody who's 18 and grew up learning a narrative of history that isn't accurate and doesn't necessarily have their identity attached to that narrative Mm -hmm. and is open to ideas. And and so in some ways, this would be a book that I would have loved to have read yeah. um, on entering college was my goal, at least. Mm-hmm. I like to think that I would have loved. I probably would have <laughs> not have done my reading, but um, the uh, I would have loved for it to be. And so that sort yeah. of motivated me to write the book was very much current events. Definitely. That really makes sense. Okay. So after taking your Civil War in American memory class last semester, I know a lot about your research was centered around examining the impact of the Civil War monuments and their connection to memory. Could you discuss one of the monuments that you focus on in your book for our listeners? Yeah, so probably the most prominent monument that I I focus the book around, or at Mm -hmm. least two chapters of the book around, is the monument at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Right. And the way this is actually how the project started is I was literally in a class called Monuments in Memory, and mm-hmm. I had to write a final paper. Mm-hmm. And every day on my walk to class, I would walk by a monument. 
Right. And I was trying to come up with a research paper, and I thought, yeah, I'll just do this this monument that's on campus. <laughs> right. How hard can it be? Mm. <laughs> and I started digging into the archives, and I found accounts in newspapers initially of the dedication. And after reading those new- newspaper dedica- uh, dedications, I noticed that it kept re- it referred a couple times to a speech being given by Julian Carr mm. that wasn't in the newspaper, though. They didn't mm. include what was in the speech. They just said a speech. And so I thought, I should see if Julian Carr has papers, has a yeah. collection. And I looked, and sure enough, Julian Carr had a collection of papers mm-hmm. at UNC. Oh, wow. So I literally had to walk just a couple buildings over to <laughs> yeah. get to them. I looked at the finding aid for the archival documents, and it said, you know, it was, it, it was broken up into, like, letters, business documents, speeches, and addresses. And I thought, mm-hmm. aha, I bet it's in speeches and addresses because I'm a very good historian. <laughs> I came to that conclusion. And, uh, and then I looked more carefully, and I noticed they were organized by date. And I said, aha, I should probably look in the 1913 <laughs> folder because that was the year that the monument was erected. Right. Sure enough, I open up the folder, and about the fourth document in there is this speech. Mm. And I start reading this speech. And the speech is a pretty typical Confederate monument speech, dedication speech. Mm. It talks all about how great the Confederacy was. It talks about how Confederate soldiers fought more gallantly than anyone since Thermopylae. Um, which is a bold claim to make since there's been a lot of wars since, you know, Thermopylae uh, <laughs> in ancient Greece. Um, but I, I'm reading along, and then I get to this part where he says, this monument isn't just a monument to the war. It's a monument to re- the era of Reconstruction mm. when we overturned the outcome of the war, basically, and uh, reasserted white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you about my part in it. He says, I'm not saying, um, he says, Carr says, that he horsewhipped a an African American woman because mm-hmm. she had um, spoken back to a white woman, basically. Oh, yeah. And he he's not saying this in embarrassment; he's saying this in pride, mm-hmm. and that this is what the monument celebrates is reasserting mm-hmm. white supremacy. And so that monument was had been controversial for a long time, but it had been largely controversial because the question was whether the war was about slavery. Mm-hmm. And somebody wrote a letter to the editor in the local newspaper. It was literally the, the, the Daily Tar Heel saying something along the lines of, the war didn't have anything to do with slavery. The monument has nothing to do with race. Leave it alone. Mm. And I thought to myself, oh, this is a time I can teach some people about Jim, the Jim Crow era. Right. Because this is a Jim Crow era monument, mm-hmm. not a Confederate monument is right. one way of thinking about it. Because it's not put up during the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. It's put up 50 years later. Yeah. And so I said, I'll publish a op-ed a letter to the editor, just explaining. I didn't really take a stance. I just said, here's what they said when they dedicated it. And I gave the quote mm-hmm. that Carr had had done. And lo and behold, the people had not heard about this. Wow. And wow. an activist took that quote and they started spreading the word. They did the education, not me, to be clear. Activists did a really good job of make, ensuring that everybody heard about this quote. It showed mm-hmm. up in op-eds. They stood outside on football games next to the monument and talked wow. to people. Activists spent the next really um, like six, seven years mm. talking to people uh, and, and explaining the monument. Oh, yeah. And public support for this monument disappeared, mm. essentially. Right. Because people learned about the history of it. And yeah. it was like, well, actually, we don't want this representing us. This isn't who we are mm. anymore. It may have been who we are, but it's not who we are now. Right. And so because it's not a monument that was really teaching you about history, it was a monument that was teaching you who to emulate, who Mm. you value. And the support for the monument disappeared in Chapel Hill. Mm. When I was in grad school, there were very few people, very few faculty members, I should say. There were plenty of students calling for its removal. Mm. By the time it was removed... Something like, or, or at this point, something like 17 departments, don't quote me on the number, had have passed resolutions calling for its removal. Oh, very interesting. And, and so public opinion, you can see shift. Mm-hmm. So like most, many departments passed these resolutions and were calling for its removal when students, because it had not been removed yet, mm-hmm. removed it themselves oh, wow. by attaching a chain to it and yanking. Mm. Um, and it fell over into the dirt um, and it was it was removed from campus that way but there just wasn't a support then to put it back up mm. locally nobody wanted it right and so I think what you see there 
is an example of the way that historical education specifically and historical research can be used to help shift public opinion. Yeah. Um, And I don't want to take credit here because it was not me that did it. It was these activists who who really did the hard work of educating people about Mm -hmm. um, it in ways that I did not expect when I published that letter to the editor. I published that letter to the editor thinking this will be a way to teach some people about Mm -hmm. Jim Crow. Um, right. And I did not have a clear understanding of of sort of what that monument meant yet to the community. And I think that was the other element of it there is that it had long been offensive to African-American members of the community. Mm-hmm. And they knew that and they said that. And it took the community listening and hearing that finally to really get rid of, yeah. of, of public support. Um, but there were plenty of black students and faculty who, would, who when you listen to them, mm-hmm. would tell you, I don't like walking through that part of campus. I find it disturbing. Yeah. Um, I think the other element that really helped shift public opinion was that um, white supremacists began counter-demonstrating against the demonstrators who wanted it removed. Mm. And when literal members of the Ku Klux Klan are showing up onto campus, it becomes wow. very unpopular very quickly. Yeah. And I think for a lot of faculty, that was the key moment, mm-hmm. was when you started having activists, students getting death threats from white wow. supremacists um, who really wanted the monument to stay on campus. Some of them yeah. showed up on campus um, like armed. Wow. And, and I think for any professor, the most important thing is our students to be able to get to our classroom safely for us to teach you, right? right? I can teach you about a Confederate monument by going out and seeing the monument, but I don't need to. I can put a photo on the screen. It works just as well. Mm-hmm. But I can't teach you at all if you can't get to my classroom without fearing for your life. And so I think seeing actual neo-Nazis on campus was very eye-opening for some of the community um, who had not realized the ties between this monument yeah. and white supremacy. Absolutely. Really cool to see the power of history there to incite so much needed work and change in knowledge. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. One more quick question before we go on break. What do you hope people will take away from reading your book? That's a really good question. I think most importantly, what I really hope they take away is the idea that history does matter Mm -hmm. um, and that much of the way that society functions today systemically Right. When I say systemically, I mean as a system has really problematic structures that are meant to maintain a status quo and and keep those on top on top and those on bottom on bottom. Mm-hmm. And and so, in other words, that we don't get equal opportunity and and so that the reality of our society is one in which we do still have inequity and everyone doesn't get the same opportunity. And the myth that they do get the same opportunity is really problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, And that the past does matter. And I think that the, if they can take those out of it and they can take also that the, the legacy of the Civil War is still very much alive and the legacy of white supremacy that came out of it is still very much at play in our society and our culture it's not dead. Racism is not something that's 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 not that gone. That's gone, unfortunately. As much as I wish it were, and not talking about it isn't going to solve it. Right. Um, trying to pretend that racism isn't there is, in many ways, a form of continuing systemic inequity mm-hmm. by ignoring its existence. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. We're going to take a break, but we'll see you in. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me, Auburn University's History Radio Hour. Um, if you're just joining us, we're here with Dr. Dombey um, talking about Amer- the American Civil War and memory. Uh, we're, next up, we're going to talk about Dr. Dombey's current project, a, a book titled At War With Itself, which describes Southerners throughout the American Civil War and their fights with their neighbors and the legacy that surrounds these conflicts as a way to provide new insights into why the Confederacy lost, why Reconstruction ended the way it did, and the distinctiveness of Southern society, culture, and politics. What was your inspiration to write a book on this topic? It's a really good question. And this is another example of where the archives made the decision for me more than I I chose a thing. I was in the archives and I found a death threat um, in the archives. It was literally a letter from three brothers who were threatening a member of 
a, a guy named Captain. Um, it wasn't really clear who it was at first, but he turns out he was a member of the Home Guard. He's sort mm-hmm. of the militia tasked with rounding up deserters and the like. Mm-hmm. And in this letter, they say, you know, stop looking for us or we're going to we know where you live. We're going to mess you up. Don't mess with our mom or we'll mess with you. Um, and they said, if you if you come after us again, we're going to fully fill you with lead. Um, and, and it was this amazing. It's a single piece of paper, both mm-hmm. sides written on. And these men who wrote it were barely literate. Um, everything's misspelled in it. I mean, it's one of the harder documents I've ever read, actually. Mm. Um, they spell the word, they, they want to use the word hypocrites, right? Oh, yeah. And they spell it as hippo space crit. Oh, interesting. And it, I mean, it took me a while to be like, why are they talking about hippos? <laughs> um, I'm really confused, right, right. right? But it was, I mean, that's just one example mm-hmm. of the many words. And it talks about a sprinkle house. And I'm like, what is a sprinkle house? It turns out there's a guy in the community called... Hugh Sprinkle. That was his last name. And so the Sprinkle House was his house. Hmm. Um, But like, so there are all these things in it where I was like, what is going on with this letter? Who are these guys? It's Calvin, Thomas, and Will's Dial. And I had no idea who they were. And I went to, I just wanted to know what the story was. Like, did they, did they shoot the guy? Did they get shot? What happened? Right, right? Right. You have this amazing death threat document in the archives no one really had written about it. It turned out there had been a few scholars who'd, who'd looked at it um, but hadn't really published books about it. it was, they were actually in dissertations. That, there have since been books about it that have come out about them. But I went to the um, some of my professors mm-hmm. and I said, how do I figure out who these people are? Right. And they showed me how to figure it out. And I figured out, all right, these people are in Forsyth County, North Carolina, uh, which is the Winston-Salem area. And I said, all right, well, I want to find out more about them. So I started mm-hmm. digging into newspapers at the time mm-hmm. to see if there was any accounts. And sure enough, there are accounts of these guys in the newspaper getting in gunfights mm-hmm. and robbing people. And, I mean, there was this entire war at home, right, mm-hmm. within the middle of North Carolina, well behind the Confederate lines, where people are shooting each other and robbing each other and threatening each other and it's this sort of insurgent campaign, but it's not really about who wins the war. It's about very much localized issues, right? Mm-hmm. They're not attacking the Confederate war effort. Mm-hmm. They're attacking individuals who are attacking them personally, who are trying to force them to serve. Mm-hmm. And two of the brothers, it turns out, um, and it took me a while to figure this out, um, two of the brothers end up dead. Mm-hmm. Um, the two older brothers, one gets uh, conscripted, forced into the military. He deserts, comes home, and that's when the death threat was sent, mm-hmm. when he's at home and they're trying to find him mm-hmm. and his brothers. And these these were three of the poorest members of the community. They had uh, no investment in slavery themselves financially, mm-hmm. um, although they were perhaps socially invested in it. Right. Um, this is not to say they were abolitionists, but they they were their father had died when they were young. They'd been... They hadn't even been able to all live at home at times when, because their mother couldn't support all oh, three of yeah. them as well as their sisters. Hmm. And, and so these three brothers, their story really was what inspired me. And what happened was um, the oldest, Thomas Woolstyle, uh, he, he was conscripted. He deserted. He came home. Eventually, a Confederate unit came back to North Carolina to search for deserters. They find the brothers. Hmm. There's a gunfight. The middle brother is killed. He's shot through the stomach um, and dies from his wounds hmm. uh, in that gunfight as they resist being forced into the Confederate Army. Right. Thomas is captured. He's tried for desertion and sentenced to death, and he's executed. Hmm. And then the unit that captures the brothers forces the third brother, the youngest, Calvin, to join the unit. Oh, wow. And so Calvin Dial is forced to join the unit that causes his brother's deaths, mm. which I can own. There's no documents wow. about this, unfortunately. I can only imagine how he felt, yeah, you know, absolutely. about these units, about this unit that basically um, caused his brother's deaths. Yeah. And he deserts, unsurprisingly, uh, possibly twice. Um, the documents aren't exactly clear. Mm-hmm. But he returns home and embarks on basically a personal vendetta at that point. And becomes known as the Notorious Dial. Oh, interesting. And 
Dial spends the war robbing people and he builds up a gang. And in the very last days of the war, he's captured. He's actually shot through the hip hmm. by another deserter who betrays him for the reward money. Oh, wow. So it gets really complex when we start yeah. talking about their loyalties. It's not a simple, oh, he's a unionist because he doesn't really – it's not about saving the union that mm-hmm. he's fighting for. It's about I don't want to fight mm, is yeah. what he's fighting for. But then he's captured by this other deserter mm. who wants the money. Like It's not a clear yeah. one side and another. The, the factions are much larger. And he ends up having to flee after the war. Mm-hmm. He can't stay. Because he's robbed too many families. And when all these Confederate soldiers come home after the war, he's made some enemies. And so he flees to West Virginia and will spend the rest of his life in West Virginia um, because of it. And so it was his story that really inspired me, um, followed by finding – as I was doing this research to try to find him, I kept finding other murders Mm. and other conflicts. And so I found a a quintuple homicide um, where a guy literally kills five people. Um, over a series of, I think, four days because they won't serve. And so mm. he, he, it's sort of – and it's in the last days of the war. It's very much he's murdering people who cause trouble for his family. Yeah. And and that sort of – I started to think, like, how does a community get put back together? Yeah, definitely. We, scholars had looked at guerrilla warfare during the war. Mm-hmm. They hadn't looked at really its legacy, though. What happens after the war? How do you – it's all well and good to, at the end of the war, when white northerners go home – they don't have to see white Southerners on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. But if your neighbor shot your son and you have to see them daily, oh, it's a yeah. different story. Yeah. So that's really the point of the book is to try mm. to figure out how do communities deal with the divisions created by war. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. And like stories within stories and motives within motives. Very cool. Okay, so considering some of your work surrounds monuments, like we were talking about earlier, does this current project connect to monuments at all, or does it deviate more from your past studies and take you down a more unique path for this project? Yeah, that's a really good good question. So this study that I'm doing now, this book I'm doing now, looks at three specific communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so monuments may end up playing a very small role. Okay. There are monuments within each of these communities. However, those monuments are put up after most of when I'm interested in. Most right. of my... My interest is earlier. Mm-hmm. And where my first book was about sort of collective cultural memory, how we culturally remember the war, this is much more looked at the social structures. Mm. So I'm really interested in how people, rather than how us as a society sort of understand the world around us, mm-hmm. I'm interested in how do individuals interact with each other in this book. So it's a very different sort of approach to history. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, monuments have not played as big of a role um, as of now mm-hmm. in the process, it could change. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to say it won't. But so far, monuments have played a much lower role, much smaller role, in part because most Confederate monuments are put up after 1890. Right. Most Confederate monuments are put up well after the Confederacy mm-hmm. because until the establishment of Jim Crow for the people putting up these monuments – it's harder to celebrate the Confederacy because the Confederacy looks like a loser. After the establishment of Jim Crow, when they've reestablished white supremacy, putting Mm -hmm. up a monument to white supremacy makes more sense to them. Right. Right. And so in some ways they couldn't put up those monuments. Literally they can't Mm -hmm. um, put them up in some cases because the Union Army is still there. um, Or the U.S. Army, I should say, is still there Mm -hmm. in 1868. Mm -hmm. And so you can't put up a monument. They're not going to let you. Yeah. Um, So that is the other element there, is that the period I'm looking at, monuments play less of a role. Okay, cool. Interesting. Broadly speaking, how do these conflicts affect the outcome of not only the Civil War, but Reconstruction as well? Well, and that's that's the hard question, right? Is that, and that's the question I think I'm most interested in, but I'm also struggling the most as a scholar to answer that question because it Mm -hmm. is so complex. Mm -hmm. But I think the key one is, there's a couple key elements. One is, we like to think, a lot of people think of Reconstruction as something that's imposed upon the South. In reality, I would argue that Southerners are the creators of many of Reconstruction's policies. They're the ones who are writing to Northern congressmen saying, you have these, these white Southerners and black Southerners, both, who are being persecuted by former Confederates, mm-hmm. who are writing to Northern politicians like Thaddeus Stevens in the 1860s and saying, we're being persecuted. We need to have 
a, be- a more strict reconstruction. You've got to not allow people who were Confederate officers to be in charge because we can't get justice and they're throwing us in jail or they're still robbing us. We're still being persecuted. So a lot of the conflict that's fought during the war doesn't disappear. Mm-hmm. It just moves to different venues. Right. So rather than it being shooting people in the streets, it's in the courtrooms mm. as those cases are tried or it's in politics as people are aligning based on wartime loyalties in their politics. So right. the Republican Party of 1868 in the South is very much consists of African-Americans and white Southerners who didn't like the Confederacy are sort of the two biggest contingents within mm-hmm. that party. And and both contingents are important, right? And, and they're both made up of Southerners. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the ones that are implementing all these policies and asking for all these policies. And so in some ways, one of the important things that comes out of this thing is to really see how much Reconstruction is, a, is created within the South and is not imposed upon the South. Only if we consider solely Confederates supporting white Southerners as Southerners do we did they not did Southerners not create Reconstruction? If mm-hmm. you instead say, well, Southerners includes African American Southerners and white dissenting Southerners who didn't like the Confederacy, then you suddenly go, okay, this is a Southern-born thing. But it also shows the way that per- interpersonal dynamics really shape Reconstruction in ways mm-hmm. we don't always realize. Yeah. So in addition to having to deal with a racial hierarchy that's been sort of overturned, but still sort of being figured out, right? Mm-hmm. There's, it's contested what's going to come. You also have social relations that have been broken yeah. in between individuals who had previously been friends or acquaintances, mm. and these have to be restructured. So in the same way that the former enslaved individual and the former enslaver have to figure out, all right, what's our relationship now mm-hmm. that I am no longer your enslaver and you're no longer my slave if if you're the enslaver in that scenario, or I'm no longer your slave and you're no longer my enslaver. Um, how? What is our relationship? Are we right. equals or am, do I just have slightly more rights than I did? That's the big struggle. Hmm. But that's also not just a legal struggle. It's a social struggle of what is our social relationship. Hmm. Interesting. And important to, like, I guess, remember the personal part of history, too, and that it's, like, you know, still occurring to people and not just, like, you know, passive people. Yeah. I mean, these individuals are really trying to figure out for themselves what is my relationship. And they're Mm -hmm. complaining in their letters and in their documents that they don't have friends anymore in some Mm -hmm. cases. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as my old friends won't talk to me because I didn't support the Confederacy. And and how do they deal with that? Yeah. And that can have real ramifications in politics. Mm-hmm. It can have real ramifications just in daily life, in business dealings, yeah. in court dealings. And sometimes it's in violence. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes Reconstruction is a period with a lot of racial violence. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that racial violence is also tied to personal relationships. Mm-hmm. These are not just randomly targeted individuals. Mm-hmm. These are terrorist attacks frequently when we're talking about Reconstruction violence aimed at keeping black people from voting, but they're frequently also targeting people that know each other. Hmm. Um, And they've had long experience with someone, right? Somebody who was enslaved is getting attacked by their enslaver, former enslaver. Um, Somebody who, um, you know, it's neighbors who are doing this. The the Klan is attacking its neighbors when you think about that. And so it's not just racial. It's very much racialized. Mm -hmm. And race is key to understanding it. But these social interactions are also key. It's mm-hmm. how they knew who to target, mm-hmm. right? This is not a we're randomly targeting. They're targeting literally, mm-hmm. usually leaders of the community. Yeah. Um, and so it is. it very much is personal violence as well as political violence. Mm-hmm. They overlap. Yeah. Very interesting. We're going to go to a break, and we'll see you in two minutes. Hello, and we are back here with It's All History to Me. We're here with Dr. Jambi from the History Department, and it is our Q&A segment now. All right, so our first trivia question for you is, what year did the United States put up the most monuments commemorating the Civil War? This is a really good question. And to be honest, I mean, there's there's different answers I can give you that different studies have said, but mm-hmm. I'd say we actually don't know fully 
right. which year it is okay. because most of those studies are incomplete. We're still mm. figuring out how many monuments have gone up, mm. right? And where are all the monuments? Right. The number of times I've been like walking through a place that I've walked 12 times mm. and I turn around and I see a plaque on the wall oh, that's yeah. talking about the Confederacy. Do we count that as a monument, mm. right? And so depending on how we define monuments, going to be a little. That being said, mm-hmm. I can say that the peak of monument building is clearly within the years, I'd say, 1905 mm-hmm. to maybe uh, 1915-ish. Okay. okay. Um, with a, a wider range of mm-hmm. sort of 1900 to 1920. Right. That's sort of the peak period for monument. There are other peaks along the way mm-hmm. in the 1960s, for instance, in reaction to the civil rights movement. We also see a peak, but okay, those yeah. five years. Now, I don't know. Do you have yeah. a stat that you, yeah. you've you dug up? Um, <laughs> yes. How close am I? Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, according to the NPR article and a graphic that I found while finding this question, um, the graphic was provided by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And according to it, the most Civil War memorials were put up in 1911 in the United States, which is 46 years after the war's end in 1865, and that a large portion of those unveiled in 1911 were monuments on courthouse grounds. Yeah, you see a a real shift towards courthouse grounds Mm -hmm. in the early 20th century. It sort of starts, um, the earliest monuments, you see them in cemeteries. They're very much funerary monuments. Mm -hmm. They're dealing with the trauma of war. And monuments can serve multiple purposes, it's worth remembering. Mm -hmm. And the later monuments are really about celebrating the Confederacy as opposed to dealing with the trauma of war and the loss of so many men Mm. um, within communities. And so... You see the shift. You mm-hmm. put it in. If you put it in a public, in front of a courthouse, it's a statement of power. Right. If you put it in a cemetery, in many ways, it's a statement of mourning. Right. And these these are different things, mm-hmm. right? What's the last thing you see as you're going in to be a jury? Mm-hmm. Is a monument to white men that can have a problematic impact on say juries. Right. Um, and so we're actually seeing this as a legal argument being made right now mm-hmm. in court cases that have called for retrials based on the fact that a jury, I think this was in Tennessee, a jury was meeting in a room that had Confederate flags up. Mm, yeah. And and the lawyers basically said that you can't get a, a an African-American defendant cannot get a free, fair trial if, there be, if the jury's meeting in a room full of white supremacist mm. propaganda. Um, and so we may see that as a, a legal strategy for monument removal in the near future. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. One more trivia question. Uh, what state has the most Civil War monuments? So I don't know off the top of my head, uh, but I would imagine, depending on how you define monuments, are we including battlefield monuments? Mm. If we're including battlefield monuments, I'd go with Virginia mm-hmm. uh, just because there's so many more battlefields there. Mm. Um, but I don't know off the top of my head the most. What is mm. it? The answer we have is that Virginia is wildly <laughs> regarded as the state with the most Civil War monuments. Most are to the Confederacy. However, there are a few that mo- that honor Union men or units as well. Yeah, there are some. They're interesting. One of the more interesting set of monuments, Civil War monuments, mm-hmm. are monuments to uh, U.S. soldiers mm-hmm. that are found within the South. Uh, and there aren't as many of them, but there's some really interesting ones. There's one that was put up by African-Americans, for instance, in North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, specifically to the United States Colored Troops, which was the all-black regiments mm-hmm. um, that were raised in the second half of the Civil War and fought for the United States. And in some ways, those monuments are really um, ones that have understudied. There's mm-hmm. an entire master's thesis out there to be written by somebody um, on monuments within the South to the U.S. Uh, military. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so to wrap up here with our last minute, uh, we'll have like two questions that we try and ask all of our guests at the end of the show. So first, why is it important that we study history? It's a great question. And I think the answer we can go to uh, Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, Shakespeare famously said in The Tempest, the past is prologue, right? Mm. We do not know how we, the prologue is what tells us how we got where we are today. Mm -hmm. We can't solve the problems of today without understanding their historical roots. People always say, we got to study the past to avoid making the same mistakes. And I don't actually think that's the best argument hmm. because I think we're going to make the same mistakes hmm. regardless. Um, what I think we can actually do with history that's more productive in many cases is study the past to figure out how we got here in the first place. Oh, yeah. And yeah. once we understand how we got here in the first place, we can unravel the, prop, the, the, the root causes of our, our society's problems. Yeah, that totally makes sense. 
Very interesting. One more question before we wrap up. What advice do you have for current and future students of history? It's a great question. I would say the most important advice I'd have is to keep studying and to study what interests you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you study what interests you and study in a way that history that don't be afraid to connect history to the present. Mm. A, a lot of there's been a lot of debate recently about this idea of presentism, about whether yeah. um Historians need to be disconnected from the present when they're writing. And I don't think any historian actually is disconnected from the present. We're all writing within our time. Mm -hmm. The reason we're interested in the topics we're interested in are because we think they're important. You don't spend a career as a historian if you don't think what you're doing matters. Um, And so I would say don't worry so much about whether, about presentism, so long as you um, go into your studies with an open mind and you're honest about what you're doing. Um, I think the rest will follow Mm, Um, because anytime you're being a revisionist historian, which Mm. is what you want to be because otherwise you're just repeating what other people have said, (laughs) um, somebody's going to say you're being presentist. Um, So don't worry too much about it. Oh, very interesting. Okay, yay. Well, to wrap up, we'd like to say a big thank you to Dr. Dombey. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for waking up early to come and join us. Happy to. Yeah. We'd like to give a thank you to the History Department for their continued support and our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz. Of course, thanking the College of Liberal Arts as well. And specifically this week, Miss Charlotte Tuggle, who did a excellent little blurb about us, a really cool article about the work that we've been doing for the History Club. So thank you to her. Thank you to our researchers who have helped us put together our questions. Thank you to Weagle for having us. And of course, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Yes, this is All History to Me, and we'll see you next week as we have Dr. Brooks come on to the show. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 7 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.